If you have a Bible, open up with me to Genesis chapter 26. This is the last message on the life of Isaac. And uh, to get going, I have a, just a great idea. Um, I love to take kind of boring, normal things and spice them up a little bit. Um, I also have a history for asking questions that make people feel a little bit uncomfortable, I'm told. And so I want you to imagine next time you're out with your friends and uh, you guys are out to dinner and just a normal day, normal conversation. I'm going to give you like a subject matter that I think could spice up the conversation a little bit. Uh, The question goes like this. What are some ways your spouse or your girlfriend or your fiance or whoever you're with, what are some ways that they are like their parents. It's so much fun. It's one of the most delightful questions. So I I have done this a few times over the past month, and you got to be really careful, right? Because when you do this, I have some smirks over here. we got husbands nudging their wives. Uh, uh, When you do this, though, it's very interesting because sometimes the conversation gets really emotional very quickly. Oh, she's just like her mother. She's just like her father. And I take great delight. Now, in your community questions, they're on the back of your sermon notes. The second question is this. what are some funny and or not so funny habits or patterns or ticks you have inherited from your parents or that your children have inherited from you? Now, here's my rule for you. <clears throat> when you go to your community groups, would you be so kind to not slander your parents, uh, not slander your grandparents? Uh, grace is going to be a really like, meaningful thing in that moment. Uh, because one day, for those of you also who don't have kids, one day your kids are going to get older and they're going to be critiquing you. So critique your parents and your grandparents with the level of grace you would want your children to evaluate you. Now, my wife, uh, many of you, I don't think most of you in the room know my wife. Her name's Brienne, and I'm smart enough to know not to comment on my wife's uh, bad things. Uh, there aren't any that she's inherited from her mother and father-in-law, I want to be clear, because they listen to most of the messages that we give, and they go to church with us at Barlet. So I can't think of a single thing that I would change <laughs> about my mother-in-law or my father-in-law. That being said, uh, there are a few things about my wife that she has just inherited so many of their greatest strengths. And so my mother-in-law is so creative. She can walk into really any room and just make it more beautiful. My wife has that same ability. In fact, when we go to, uh, we find ourselves at a lot of galas and events and weddings, and so she'll go and she'll see what other people have done. And she's not even hired to do it. And she'll go in and she'll start rearranging things and flowers and whatnot. and, and, And then people will say, oh, that was so helpful. She just loves to do that. And uh, I don't know what that says about her, actually, that she's changing everybody's stuff. So anyways, uh, that's a different story. But um, she is also very musical. Uh, My mother-in-law is just an incredible musician, an incredible singer, and she's inherited that from her. My father-in-law has an incredible work ethic. Uh, This guy is one of the hardest working dudes I've ever met in my life, and my wife has his work ethic. Uh, My father-in-law is an incredible Bible teacher, and uh, she also, when she opens up the Word and teaches, is incredibly just compelling and uh, she's growing an amazing, to be an amazing Bible teacher as well. Uh, when I look at my wife's life, Mark and Sally Hurlbert are all over her life. Uh, we just cannot get away from it. And I see the residue of all the stuff they've put into her on a regular basis. Uh, last week at our egg packing party, we had a young mom. She was in her early 30s, and she was with her mother. And they were walking down the hallway, and their gait, the way they walk, uh, the way their knees bent, the way everything moved, their pace, everything, it was just identical. And I was like, holy moly, like, is that nature or is that nurture? Like, which came first? Um, my father uh, and I have very, very little in common. Uh, So my father is a great guy, but our personalities are as separate as can be. I have inherited one, I think, really unfortunate uh, thing from my father-in-law, and that is this. 
We are emotional eaters. Anybody? Any emotional eaters in the room? Yeah, we got Craig. We got, yeah, we got some people here. Yeah, there we, thank you. I honor you. <laughs> Here's what that means. It means when we feel, we eat. When I'm happy, I eat. When I'm sad, I eat. When I'm bored, I eat. If you make me like, if we have a conversation and I feel anything, I'm like, oh, the only thing I can do right now is eat. So unfortunately, that means that there is a very large fat man deep down inside of me waiting to emerge at any time. And so I got to control this guy. But I got that from my father. We're emotional eaters. And uh, it's way more than just physical and habits and patterns that we inherit from our moms and dads, right? Um, there are also sinful things that we inherit from them as well. Uh, there's an article written, and uh, I want to I read you some of the points of this. The article is written, uh, and, and there's a number of research and statistics done on habits inherited from moms and dads. And here are some of the ways that this article um, identifies uh, tr- habits and patterns that have been inherited. Number one, ineffective ways of managing stress. That social scientists and psychologists can look at the way that kids handle stress, and what they see is that the vast majority of them statistically handle stress and anxiety just like their mom and or their dad. Unhealthy financial habits. That if you are a mother or father who is fiscally responsible, statistically, actually, your kids are going to be way more likely to be fiscally responsible. But if you love debt and spending, guess what happens? Statistically speaking with your kids, they spend a lot of money. The inability to express yourself. Catch this. Your ability to be familiar with yourself and your emotions and then to give vocabulary to that in a way that's helpful. Guess where primarily we learn that from? Our moms and dads. No pressure moms and dads. Poor communication skills. That your, your, interpersonal, your interpersonal communication is largely developed and shown to you by your mom and dad. Now, does this mean you are a slave to any of these things? What's the answer? No, no you're not. Thank you. Un- unhealthy relationship dynamics, not being able to say I'm sorry. Apparently, people who struggle to say I'm sorry, the stats are add on it, they have learned this ability or not learned this ability primarily from mom or dad. Not being able to resolve conflicts, actually conflict resolution styles, come back to first and foremost primarily learned from your mom and your dad. Now, this is a principle I want to share with you. It's from Genesis 26. We're going to see this principle all over the text. And it goes like this. There, no, go back one. <clears throat> there is a, go back one slide. There is a powerful magnetic attraction toward our parents unrepented of and unnamed sins. There is a powerful magnetic attraction toward our parents unrepented of and unnamed sins. And there is a powerful dynamic, is there not, between you and your children as you grow up together, as they grow up under your leadership, you start to see their habits and their patterns and these ticks and these things, these personality traits. And what is interesting is that when we talk about sins, there's something about the sins of moms and dads that when our children grow up in this, we are like magnetically drawn to these things. Now, the hard reality of this is most parents massively underestimate the power of this magnetism. So as we have marital issues, as we have personal spiritual issues that we're navigating and working through, here's what happens. What happens is our kids are actually, almost by osmosis, becoming these things, and they're drawn 
to them. And so there's, there's this sense of which we forget the little eyes, the grandkids and the children in our home that are seeing these things. Now, before we get to Genesis 26, um, I'm going to give you a big so what on the front end, okay? Um, what I want to do is I want to talk about overcoming generational sin so that in about three hours when I'm done preaching, then I know, right? We got some, we got some charismatic people here. Overcoming generational sin. This is a so what. We're going to do this in the front end, and then we'll j- jump into Genesis 26. Um, Mom and dad, there are two stages to really overcoming gener- uh, generational sin, uh, these habits and patterns that are passed down. Uh, if, if mom and dad is still alive, this would be stage one. Some of you don't have this opportunity or privilege, but here's, here's what is required, I believe, of the Christian mom and dad. Number one, it is to name and confess each sin specifically. I want to I want to help you with this. They're the ones that you have seen that you've inherited from your mother, your father, your grandma, or your grandpa. I think if most people are honest, we take an inside look at ourselves and we can see habits and patterns. If you can't, just ask your spouse because uh, they'll tell you exactly what you get from mom, grandma, and grandpa. Um, but what's interesting is that we have to take seriously in us as moms and dads what we see that we've inherited because likely if we've inherited them then we're going to pass these on for another generation and so one of our opportunities what is required of us is is to say no in christ we're going to stop these things here here and now like we will not give these sins over to another generation we will figure out a way to repent them uh, repent of them now, i think there is something powerful about being able to name them about giving vocabulary to these things, uh, to give them biblical words. For example, in our, in our culture, when people apologize, we are the most generic, pathetic apologers on the planet. I'm sorry if I hurt you, if you did hurt me, so don't say that. Like, what did you do? Like, with my kids, I'm trying to teach them. Um, no, you lied. No, you deceived. No, you manipulated. No, you were, I mean, you fill in the blank, giving biblical terminology to the things that we struggle with that we are seeing that we inherit. And one of the most powerful things that a mom and dad can do is to bring their children around them at the right age, ideally, and be able to look at them and say, I want to name for you something I have inherited. It is in me. It is my sin issue. And I want to name this thing, and I want to repent of it. I want to challenge you. Don't let this go to another generation. Let it stop with you. And so moms and dads, if you are still alive, you're here, you're listening, um, this is a beautiful responsibility. And the irony is this. You're afraid of telling your kids, but guess who already knows? Your kids. All you're doing is saying what everybody already knows. And the irony of this is that we think we're going to lose face or lose respect. And the crazy thing about this is this. When somebody apologizes, our respect for them rarely goes down. Usually it goes up, especially when they say the things that we already all know in the first place. I don't think I've shared this with you, but years ago we had a pastor at our church, and I went into his office, and uh, it was really just inconsequential. I went in, and <clears throat> he said to me, can I, can I have like a little bit of water? And just, thank you. Craig, can you just run really fast? And like, you know. <laughs> um, so I go into his office, and he says, uh, he says, Michael, Michael, come here. And I walk in, and he tells me something really simple and stupid. And then I leave his office, and as I'm leaving the office, he shouts down the hallway, and he says to me, Michael, come back here. And uh, thank you, thank you. And so I come back, and he looks at me, and he says this, I lied to you. I said, what did you, what did you lie about? That never happened. It was so stupid. It was so inconsequential. It was like the smallest little white lie on the planet. And I looked at him and I said, I totally forgive you. Thank you. And I walked out 
And I trusted him more than I ever imagined trusting him. My, my heart in that moment of confession found myself drawn to him. My respect for him went through the roof in that moment. And I was like, wow, that, I was shocked in that moment how his honesty about something he had just done, he confessed it, he called it what it was, he even gave it biblical terminology, and then he owned it right away. And I was like, I respect that guy. I don't need people to be perfect. I know we're not. I, I know that people are going to lie, deceive, and cheat, and manipulate. The list goes on and on and on and on, right? We're going to have pride in this and that. What I just think is so powerful is when somebody has enough EQ, enough emotional self-awareness, to know that it's there and then to own it and then to apologize for it, my respect for those people goes up all the time. Stage one is really for moms and dads. And again, when you repent, you can't control it, but stay, what your kids do with it. But stage two is about sons and daughters. Um, I know it, it makes me very uncomfortable. I understand that as my kids get older, um, actually already they're starting to tell our children's workers some of my sins. And uh, I've actually had you know, some children's workers come up to me and say, your daughter has shared some stuff with us. And did this happen? I'm like, well, not quite like she said it, but um, yeah, it did happen. And, and what they don't need is a perfect pastor. What they need is an honest one. Uh, what they need is one, hopefully, who's not disqualified, preferably. Um, but my kids are even starting to do this. They're starting to see habits and patterns, and they're calling them what they are. And what I want to be able to do is I want to be able to invite my kids into this, but preferably, I want to give them the freedom to say, if you see sin in me, I want to know. You live with me. Now, if you are disrespectful, you'll get into trouble. If you're slanderous, you'll get into trouble. Um, but I want to teach them how to handle um, when you see a brother or sister in sin. I want to give them the opportunity. I want them to be able to name it because when they can name it, it gives it less power over their life. Uh, there are already habits and patterns that I'm watching in my family. There are sins that my wife and I struggle with, and my kids are beginning to incarnate these things, and it gives me deep concern for them. And so we're trying to name these things as it happens. Um, I'll, I've told my kids multiple times, hey, like this is my struggle, and I want to call it what it is. This is sin, and I'm starting to see this in you. And I want to just tell you, like, you have the ability to overcome this. I'm trying to do this at a young age. And so, but I know as my kids get older, they're going to see more. And as they get older, the, the pain of my generational sins that I've inherited and I'm handing down are going to get more emotional. And so what I'm trying to do now is open those discussions in our home, uh, repent publicly for how I have repeated it. So if there are generational sins, to be able to look at my kids and say, I'm going to let you know I'm, I was wrong. Here's the sins, and I'm going to, I'm going to change. The reason I say... Uh, uh, repent publicly, uh, sorry, for how you've repeated it. I should say there, um, repent over and over again because generational sins are rarely ever dealt with in like one blow, right? Um, you let them know, hey, this is something I'm working toward. And then intentionally resist the magnetism because we're going to be drawn to this forever. Now, Genesis 26. Now you have your so what. Um, Genesis 26. Abraham, he has a testimony, doesn't he? Like this guy has, has, has messed up in so many ways. And the pain, the repercussions of Abraham's sins are all over Isaac's life. And so here's the question. Will Isaac resist the magnetic pull toward his father's sins? Will Isaac resist this magnetic attraction to his father's sins? Genesis 26, verse 1. It'll be on the screen. Let's look at that together. Now there was a famine in the land. Besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. Now there are multiple famines. This is a new one. Abraham had dealt with famines in the past, but the author wants you to know this is different. Famines were a semi-regular occurrence in a gregarian culture. It says this, and Isaac went to, now just say the word with me, gerar, one, two, three, 
Gerar. You've got to remember that. Gerar is going to become important. And then we have a guy. His name is Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And so this is where he goes. Now, I want to just ask you a, a personal question. Have you ever watched somebody you love and you know they're not in a good place by how they behave? So, like, you know when my son or daughter starts hanging out with those people, something's wrong. You know when my husband or wife starts drinking too much, something is wrong. Uh, you know when uh, they start dating those kinds of girls or those kinds of guys. You know that spiritually they are probably not in a great place. I'm sure you can think of circumstances, but you look at somebody, you can just identify by their very behavior, their spiritual condition, because of the kinds of things that they are doing. Uh, Gerar is not new to the Genesis narratives. And I want you to hear this. Gerar is the place where people go to run from the promises of God. When the narrative says Gerar, okay, if you're reading this carefully and slowly, and if you are a wilderness Israelite who's receiving this for the first time, and you, are, you hear this, you know about Gerar. You also remember who had been to Gerar in the past. We'll get there in a little bit, but Gerar has significance for you because you know the people, you know the king, you know the place, you know the character of what's going on in Gerar. And when you're reading this, here's what you're thinking on multiple levels. Isaac shouldn't be going anywhere near Gerar for multiple reasons. And so here's what happens. God is going to intervene in verse 2, and, and Isaac is moving south. As we get through the nation of Israel, you go south, you're getting to Gerar. Guess what's even further south than Gerar? Egypt. And so in verse 2, the Lord is seeing this southern uh, trajectory, and here's what he says to him. He says, the Lord appeared to him and said, do not go down to Egypt. Whatever you do, dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. And here's what he's saying. Gerar is on its way to Egypt. And if you go down to Egypt, this is the place, by the way, Egypt, where I am not. So if you want to leave the promised land, I'm not there. The promises of God aren't there. Nothing you want is there. Okay? This is the place you go when you're running from the promises of God. And I get it. There's a famine. And he's desperate. And he's struggling. And he's wondering how he's going to feed his family. And guess what? When we are desperate, we tell Village Church this all, at Barlet all the time. Desperate people do dumb things. When you are in a place of desperation and your physical needs or emotional needs or relational needs or sexual needs or whatever the needs are, you don't feel as if they're being met. We begin to go down to a desperate place and desperate people do dumb things. Recognize that. I do dumb things when I'm desperate. You do dumb things when you're desperate. Everybody does. Gerar is the place you go on the way to Egypt. Here's what verse 3 says. The Lord says to him, sojourn in this land. I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring, I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. Here's one sure thing Isaac knows. Yahweh always, always, always keeps his promises. There has never been one good promise that our God has made that he has not kept ever. You go back in time when, when, when Isaac was maybe 12, 13, 14 years old, and he's sitting there, and his father has a knife over him. He's tied down, and his father is about to slaughter him. And who shows up to fulfill his promise but God himself? He remembers vividly and personally, and he has never watched one good promise of God fail. And I get it. He's desperate. 
You go to Gerar, Gerar literally means a well-watered place. Uh, when you look at a map, if you look at a topographical map, it's going to be um, ocean, or, or, and then there's going to be a bunch of green, green land or whatever, and then it goes into desert. This is right at the end of the green land. This is a well-watered place. If you are desperate for water, this is understandably, practically speaking, the place you want to go. Verse 4, the Lord is repeating his promises. Don't go. Don't leave this land. Verse 4, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands and in your offspring all the nations of the earth will be blessed because Abraham obeyed my voice, kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my law. What's he going to do? Verse 6 tells us. So Isaac settled in Gerar. Go back one. So Isaac settled in Gerar. Gerar is not the ideal place to go. I'll give you a few reasons. Number one, Gerar is a place with evil Canaanite kings. Evil. Vile. So when you think of the most evil kings in the world, typically, whatever you're thinking of, this is going to be worse. Uh, A lot of people have issues with why God, Yahweh, would commission uh, the Israelites to almost complete genocide of all the tribal communities that lived in this land. And again, what most people think of, they think about it like somehow like tribes of Africa or something like that, or they think about like global kingdoms, or they they think these weird things, that these are big armies. These are tribal communities that are vile and despicable in ways you and I could never plausibly imagine. So when you think about these tribal kings, when you think about these small groups of people, um, you have to think much smaller, much more vile. Um, These are child-sacrificing, women-violating, on every level you can imagine. This is a dark community and culture. Now, why not go to Gerar? Because once before already, Isaac's father Abraham, there was a famine, there was problems, and he went to Gerar. And guess who he met? And Gerar, the same king, Abimelech. Now, here's what I want to I do with you. I want to remind you of our principle, and then we're going to go back. Here's the principle again. Uh, the principle is this. There's a powerful, magnetic attraction toward our parents unrepented of and unnamed sins. Got it? Now, take your Bibles. We're going to have it on the screen, but if you have a Bible in front of you, go back six chapters. Go back to Genesis 20 because I need you to see what happened in Genesis 20. We were dealing with Isaac. Now we're dealing with Abraham, his father. And it says this, From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev. That's the desert, the wilderness. And he's going towards that way. And he lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. Let's talk about Abraham for a moment. When in the story of Abraham did he go to Gerar? Let me just plot out a timeline for you. The Lord comes to him and says, you're going to have a child. And the child is not going to come through the, the, the maidservant. The child is coming through Sarah. And you remember Abraham heard this. He laughs. He falls on his face in belly laughter because he's like, my wife is so old. She'll never have a kid. And the Lord makes him name the child Isaac, which actually means doubting laughter. And so here's what happens. The, the Lord tells uh, Abraham, you're going to have a, a child. And then here's what happens in, in, in like line by line. Uh, right in this conversation, the Lord walks Abraham over. He sees the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And then the story picks up. The first thing Abraham does is he goes to Gerar. Now here's a question. If you are just given a promise of God that you're going to have a child through this woman, 
why on God's green earth would you leave and go to Gerar knowing, hear me, what happens to beautiful women like Abraham's wife in Gerar? I want you to hear me. Abraham went to Gerar because he was throwing away, as he had done over and over and over and over and over and over and over again, the promise of God. He went to Gerar knowing this. They were going to take his wife. Look at what happens. It goes on in verse 2. Abraham, they're right there. We're in verse 2. He's in Gerar. It's like the first words out of, out of his mouth are, she's my sister. <laughs> she's my sister. Okay. Why, what's going on? In Abimelech, wow, king of Gerar, he sent and he took Sarah. Why? Because this is what they did. They find a beautiful woman. It doesn't matter who they're married to. If he would have said, this is my wife, they would have killed Abraham and taken her anyway. If God gives you a promise that you're going to have a child through this woman, why on God's green earth would you go to Gerar? It's a little indicting. And then verse 3 says this, But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night, and he said to him, Behold, you are a dead man, and the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Like if you, the day you meet God for the first time, personally, if the first words out of his mouth are, Behold, you are a dead man. Like, that's terrible, right? And so here's what Abimelech knows right off the bat. You don't mess with Abraham's God. This God will take you down. I mean, this is, this is nuts. Now, jump back with me to Genesis 26. Here's what it says. He's in Gerar, verse 7. When the men of the place asked him about his Isaac's wife, he said, She is my Sister, if you're reading this, here's what's going through your brain. If you're reading the whole book and you're paying attention to geography, why is he in Gerar? Abraham went to Gerar. Oh no, Abimelech, king of the Philistines. That's the same one that Abraham messed with. And then he said, oh no, she's my sister. And then he says, oh, she's my sister. What are you doing? And you're reading this and you're asking yourself, why? And the next three words in verse seven tell us. For he feared. Desperate people do say, dumb things. Yours might not be fear, it might be anxiety, it might be whatever. You figure out what your desperation is, it's to be loved, it's for whatever. Desperate people do dumb things. What's so frustrating is that God had just made incredible promises to him, saying, if you stay here, you're going to be fine. Verse 7 goes on. He feared to say, my wife, thinking, quote, lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebecca, because they probably would have, because she was attractive in appearance. Go back to verse 2 in chapter 26. Let's just remind ourselves of the promises that God made to him. The Lord appeared to him and said, don't go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you for to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father he knows the promise of God and let's be honest when you're at your most desperate do you know in that moment objectively the promise of God the answer is sometimes sometimes like let me give you an example you may not know what you're thinking of but most people you're a Christian and you're going out with this girl and you're desperate I want to be loved, I want to be liked, whatever. But if you're a believer, do you know, well, if you didn't, you do now. So uh, do, you know, do you know that believers are not supposed to date, marry, get engaged, etc., to non-Christians, right? Are we all on the same page with that? You already know it. So why do, why do we do it? Desperation. 
And even though we know the promise of God, I will take care of you. I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. I will give you what you need. I will get you from point A to point B. I know you're desperate to be loved and for affection or whatever it is. I get that you're desperate, but the promise of God is I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I'll give you everything you need. You know the promise of God. But when we're desperate, we take the promises that we know, we put them aside, and we do dumb things because that's what desperate people do. Every moment of desperation in my life, I have pretty much known the right thing to do and chosen the wrong thing because I personally am setting aside the promises of God. Now, that is very different than the person who becomes a Christian. They don't know what God promises uh, them in that moment. Uh, They continue to do things, but once you know the promise of God, now you're responsible for the promise of God. You're responsible to live your life accordingly to that. But here's what we do. We know the promises. And then when we are desperate, we just set them aside. And we just say, oh, he'll forgive me. Jesus died for my sins. It's going to be okay. And then because we're desperate, we do dumb things. And this is what's happening. Verse 8 says this. When he had been there a long time. Like, how long is long? It's not short, whatever it is. He's been there a long time. This just kept going. Abimelech, king of the Philistines, he looked out of a window, and I want to bring you into some um, Hebrew for a moment. Isaac means what? Laughter, laughing, right? And then laughing means, well, laughing. Now, Isaac's name literally means laughing, but the idea here is doubting laughter. Every time Abraham would call his son, he would be reminded of when he laughed in the face of God in doubt. And so there's a little bit of a wordplay happening here. Um, in, the, in the Hebrew, it says, uh, when he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and he saw laughter, laughing with Rebekah, his wife, doubting laughter. And this is sort of an indictment that Isaac is not in a good place. And what I love about this is that verse 9 says this, uh, so Abimelech called Isaac and said, behold, she's your wife. Gotcha. Like, if you're like reading this, don't you think Abimelech should know better? Like, this dude's dad came through here decades before and said, oh, by the way, this is, my, this is my sister. Lied about it. You would think he would know. And so, verse 9, Abimelech called doubting laughter and said, behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? Doubting laughter said to him, because I thought lest I die because of her. Fear, desperate people do dumb things. Abimelech said, what is this you have done to us? You put me in another situation to mess with your God. One of the people might easily have lain with your wife and you would have brought guilt upon us all. Remember this, Abimelech knows never, ever, ever mess with Abraham's God, ever. This God will take you down. And then verse 11 says this, so Abimelech warned all the people saying, whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. All right, I force so what as we close. Number one, what are your ancestors' generational sins? I want to come back to this because I think this is really vital. We watch in Scripture from Abraham to Isaac, from King Saul to King David, and then to Solomon, and then to his children. We watch uh, generational sins. We watch king's sins. We watch national sins. Like, there is something really interesting about repeating the sins of our leaders and our fathers and our mothers. And so I want, to just ta- I want you to take a moment <clears throat> in your brains. I want you to think about them. Uh, the first step in this, as we said earlier, is to be able to name them. If you just name them and walk away, well, it's kind of defeating the purpose. It's the ability to confess them, 
and then ultimately to repent of them, which means to change, to go in a different direction. Number two, where is your gerar? What places and people will you run to to avoid the promises of God? I think it's really important for us to know when I go here, do this, start spending time with these people, that this is a red flag, it's a warning sign, that something is broken deep down inside of me. I'm not in a good place with the Lord. And knowing what your Gerar is, is one of the most powerful things that you can do to stop yourself from going to Gerar. Uh, I have a hunch that as Isaac got older, he was able to say, all right, when life is hard, when everything gets stressed, I'm tempted to leave the promised land, the land of blessing, the place where God is, to begin to go outside of those boundaries. Uh, I am very tempted to go down to Egypt, which is the pinnacle place. I mean, Gerar is actually the place you go to on the way to leaving the promised land. Uh, technically, Gerar is the place that you go when you're on your way out, because to get down to Egypt, you've got to go usually through Gerar. And so this is a huge indictment on, on Isaac, but for us, where is it? Where is our Gerar? And I think for the rest of his life, he's going to remember, don't ever, ever, ever go down to Egypt and go through Gerar. Uh, number three, we may not mistake, may we not mistake personal prosperity with God's approval. This might sound funny to put into the context of generational sins, but I want to show you what happens here. In verse 12, it says this, Isaac sowed in that land. So here's what he did. He sort of left Gerar and he went on the outskirts of Gerar and he's still in the promised land, but this is the part of the promised land. Like to get, it's not a good place to be. So, and here's what happens. He reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him and the man, Isaac, he became rich. Now you may be tempted to think about your life like this. Maybe you know where Gerar is. And maybe Gerar is actually a place where you go to and you get really wealthy. Uh, do not mistake for a moment that just because you go to Gerar, that if things go well, that the Lord approves of you going to Gerar. I want to I tell you why the Lord blessed him. The Lord blessed him here because of this. Because it does not matter whether or not Isaac was faithful to the promises. God would be faithful to his promise despite Isaac's faithlessness. This is not God's like, approval of, well, you went to Gerar and you're on your way to Egypt and then you gave away your wife and you're abandoning the promises of God. Like, that's not what this is saying. This is, this is Yahweh's way of saying, yes, you were dumb. And you know what? When you went to Gerar, when you were with that girl or you took that job or you did that thing or you had that season and yes, you made a lot of money or yes, you had a lot of fun. And yes, you didn't feel like there were a lot of consequences. Just because Gerar is easy does not mean that God is like, yay, I'm so glad you're in Gerar. And one of the things that you're going to find when you're in Gerar is that the Lord will still be good to you because his faithfulness to you is not contingent on your obedience to him, is it? And eventually, though, this is going to come back to Isaac and he's going to reap what he sows, but there's this problem that when we go to Gerar, it can be easy for a while and we can be prosperous. So we can never mistake personal prosperity with God's approval. If God said, don't go down to Egypt, if God said, don't throw away, abandon the promises of God, if he says those things, it doesn't matter how much blessing it feels like you have. We always follow the word of God. Finally, number four. May we become the people of faith and overcoming and overcomers we were redeemed to be. I love this. At the end of it, the Lord appeared to him, Isaac, the same night. And he says this, I am the God of your father. Fear not. I love how the Lord names 
his sin. And he looks at him and he says, I get that fear for you, Isaac, it's what leads you to go to Gerar and eventually to Egypt. I get that fear is the thing that makes you desperate, that tempts you to be a dumb person. The Lord just calls it on the table and says, I get it. I get it. But here's what I need you to know. I am with you. Now, in case you are unaware, let me make you aware of one small little fun thing. At the end of the Great Commission, at the, uh, where Jesus gives the church their job, our job, he says, go make disciples, baptize, teach, etc. And then he says, lo, I am with you. Every single time the Lord says, I'm with you, here's what happens. He is sending us into something impossibly difficult that will plausibly even require the giving over of our physical lives. So when the Lord says, I'm with you, like if Jesus shows up, let's say you have this opportunity to have a conversation with the resurrected Jesus, and he looks you in the face and he says this, hey, by the way, I'm with you. Here's what you can know because you've read the Bible. Every time he says he's with you, he is going to send you into something impossibly frustratingly difficult. It's like, oh no. And then think about the disciples who received that for the first time. Like all of them were killed. Right? John is the only one who miraculously is the exception to that rule. Um, all of them spread all over the world, gave their lives. I mean, they gave incredible amounts of sacrifice. And at the end of the day, they had to know this, I am with you. When God shows up, uh, he tells Joshua, uh, go, take over the land, go to war, take down these people. I am with you always. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. I am with you wherever you go. Every single time, the Lord's like, good luck, you're probably going to die. <laughs> and, but this is the point. Like, that's his, that's his desperate thing. Fear is the thing that puts him to a place. For some of you, you love your life, you love your idolatry, you love your sin, you love your pleasures. You gotta, you gotta come to grips. What, what's your Gerar? But what is the thing that makes you wanna go to Gerar? Like, what is the thing that says, when, ah, when this thing isn't right, I do desperate things and, and then I start to do dumb things? Like, what is that thing? But this isn't who God has made us to be. God has made us to be overcomers. God, uh, God has made you to not just fall prey to whatever the desperate thing is, run to Gerar and eventually jump over to Egypt. God has not made us for this. God has made us to be overcomers. And this is what I love. The Lord Jesus Christ has given everyone who trusts in Jesus his Holy Spirit. He has given us his Holy Spirit, God himself, the Spirit of Jesus Christ who dwells inside of us, who is inside of us, who is convicting us, encouraging us, challenging us, forming Christ in us, morphing us, changing our mind and the way we think, our heart and the things we love. The Spirit of God is, is powerful and beautiful and inside of every single person who trusts in Jesus Christ. And not only that, you don't just have that, but you have the Word of God, which reveals the heart of God, the mind of God, the will of God for all of humanity. And it is just there, and it is beautiful, and it is compelling. And the Lord has given us the Word of God. He hasn't stopped there. He's given us the people of God, right? And he's given us the people of God, the brothers and sisters in Christ who also have the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. And so he's giving us everything that we need to be the overcomers he's called us to be. Unfortunately, we also have this thing called a will where we can quench the Holy Spirit, push the people of God away, and shut the Word of God. And when one out of any three of those things are happening, let me tell you what I already know about you. What I already know about you is your desperate thing has been provoked. You're on your way to Gerar, and inevitably you're going to end up in Egypt. And so I would say, if you already are doing one of those things, quenching the Spirit, pushing away the people of God, or shutting the Word of God, 
one out of three of those tells me you're already starting to travel south. It already tells me that you're already, you might already even be in Gerar. When you're in Gerar, you don't just quench the spirit, right? But you push away the people of God. And as you make your way down to Egypt, you shut the word of God. And so I'm not sure where you are in this process, but the Lord is really clear. Hey, the blessings for the people of God aren't found in Egypt. They're found in the promised land. And so for some of you, you're here and and you have never trusted in Jesus Christ. And what I want to just put before you is I want to say this. Um, First of all, what you absolutely 100% need is this, the forgiveness of your sins through faith in Jesus Christ. I don't care who you are, I don't care how religious you are, all the people of God everywhere throughout all history need the forgiveness of God through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Everybody. But when you place your faith in Christ, you are also then immediately given the Holy Spirit who never leaves you or forsakes you. And this is why Jesus can say, I am with you always. Because every person who trusts in him is given the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so what, if I could <clears throat> plead with anybody in this room, what I would tell you is this, man, Isaac repeating the generational sins of his father, it's not necessary for two reasons. God himself has already forgiven his father and him for the things they've done. And number two, he's giving us the Holy Spirit so that we never have to repeat those. We can overcome those. We can move toward repentance. And so if you're here today and you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, I just want to encourage you um, that everything that you need to be an overcomer is found through placing your faith in Jesus Christ. Forgiveness of sins the Holy Spirit, and you're brought into the people of God. And then the word of God comes alive in a powerful and new way. And so if you're here today and you've never trusted in Christ, that's something you've never done before, I want to encourage you, please do that. I know after the service, uh, I think over to my right, your left, will be somebody who'd love to pray with you. Any of us would love to pray with you. Pastor Craig, um, don't give him a hug though because that's going to hurt him. Uh, But Craig would love to pray with you. But if you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, Today, today is, is the day. So what I'd like to do is I want to take a moment and I want to, I want to pray for you and I'll pray with you. And then what we're going to do is we're going to sing and we're going to celebrate communion together as we remember what Jesus has done for us. Let's pray. Father, first of all, thank you for Jesus, for giving us your son. As we think about just the implications of the shed blood of Christ on our behalf, Um, we are pretty massively reminded that we are sinners. Lord, every one of us has failed, and I think sometimes the easiest sin to see in us is the very same sins in our mom and dad and grandmas and grandpas. God, I thank you that the shed blood of Christ can cover and forgive any sin, no matter how bad it is. I thank you for the Holy Spirit who is given to all who trust in Christ, and that the Holy Spirit truly truly gives us the ability to kill those generational sins once and for all so we don't have to repeat the same errors of our mothers and fathers. And Lord, we just confess that every generation, even second and third generation Christians, we are still repenting of things that are still being passed down through, to us from them. And we will probably give some of these things to our children as well. But Lord, our prayer is that with every new generation, they would be more and more like Jesus. And thank you for making that possible through the shed blood of Christ and the Holy Spirit. Lord, I thank you for Village Church East, and I thank you for my brothers and sisters here, and I pray you would continue um, to build them, to form them into the image of Jesus. The disciples would be made because of their faithfulness to the gospel and to you, and that you would save people. 
And Lord, we love you. Uh, thank you for the stories of, of Abraham and Isaac and every page of scripture is just filled with more and more stories to show us who you are and who we are. And so Lord, would you do what you have to do by your Holy Spirit in us, whatever it is, encouragement, <clears throat> conviction, forming. We love you. We thank you now in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen.